Thank you, uh, Nancy and Bud, and welcome to our service this morning. It's good to have you here. We're very grateful that, you've, uh, that you're uh, leading us in song this morning and looking forward to having a good time together. Welcome to you and to everybody who's here, those of you who are here in the building, as well as a number of people watching uh, via camera, via Zoom. We're really uh, glad to have you here. I, uh, several times a week, I do a little jogging or running in the Memorial Park uh, up here, just up the street, and the other morning when I got there, I found this text uh, chalked on the, on the, uh, on the pavement. Uh, Enlightenment, know thyself, awaken, eat the fruit, know and hold the power, and the interesting one I found was... Uh, WTFWJD, and those of you who are in the modern world will understand. I will not translate that uh, for you. Um, but we're going to be talking about longings today and the deepest longings of our hearts. And I thought, here's somebody who has these longings, who's, who's wanting to move, who's wanting to go ahead, wanting to make something of him or herself, and is willing to encourage all of us uh, to do the same. And of course, as we come together as Jesus followers, we find our source of who we are, our source of enlightenment, our source of awakening, our source of understanding the world around us in God. And that's what we want to do this morning is center ourselves around him. I'd like to ask you to stand for our call to worship. It'll be responsive. Let us worship God, our light, and our salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of our lives. We desire to live in God's house and to seek God in his holy temple. We have come with shouts of joy to sing and make music to the Lord. Let us worship God in spirit and truth. Teach us your ways and make straight our paths in the hour of worship and always. We'll be singing How Great Thou Art, and then a song written by Bud and Nancy, which is easy to learn, God is So Good.
that Jesus is the light of the world. Whatever light there is in the world comes from him, and whatever darkness there is in the world is lit by him. So we want to welcome you into this service this morning, invite you to take this moment to meet with God in a special way. We also meet with each other, and to know that God's love for you is wide and deep. It's high There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why we begin every service by confessing that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. The love of God our Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 
be with each and every one of you from this day forth into eternity. Amen. You may be seated. Every Sunday morning we take a moment to come before God, to be honest with ourselves about who we are, about the mistakes that we made, about how well or poorly we care for others. And so it's in this spirit I invite you to pray together with me this prayer of confession to God. Almighty God, in our pride we have strayed from you. We have followed the desires of our hearts while ignoring what you desire for us. We have left things that matter undone while being consumed by the busyness we have created. Forgive us for our sins and help us to realign our lives with you. May we humbly seek you in thought, word, and deed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God the Creator brings you new life, forgives, and redeems you. Take hold of this forgiveness and live your life in the spirit of Jesus. Amen. And Bud and Nancy will lead us in another song, Be Still and Know That I Am God. sermon, whatever's comfortable for you. Two years ago, I did 
for the first time, and I believe it was in August, um, a short four-week series called Finding God in Your Songs. Now, music is a big part of my life. It's been a part of my life for a long, long time, and um, I just really find in a, in a number of songs ways to, 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 to find myself and to reach out and to think about the world and to think about God and what he has done for us uh, in the world. So we're going to do that um, for the next four weeks. Each, each week we're going to choose a different song. They're going to be primarily from the classic rock age, but not exclusively, including this morning. We're doing a song, Pearl Jam, which is a band out of Seattle that was um, formed in 1990, Seattle, Washington. It was part of the, the grunge period of Seattle in that time with bands like Nirvana and others like that. Pearl Jam, uh, composed of five people, sold more than 85 million records worldwide by 2018, making them actually one of the best-selling bands of all time. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017 in their first year of eligibility, which is quite a, quite a feat. The song we're going to do this morning is one of my all-time favorites, uh, on my all-time list, but a favorite of theirs called Wish List, was written by Eddie Fetter, who's the vocalist, uh, in uh, 1998. It's the second single from their fifth studio, studio album, which is named Yield. If you'd like to listen to it again after today, uh, just go to YouTube and put in Wish List, Pearl Jam, and it, it pops right up in all kinds of, in all kinds of forms. This is a song that's quite simple in its, in, its, in its format, and actually the words are quite simple. And Eddie Fetter has been known to uh, improvise, and even in the version that he's going to do right now for us, if you actually Google the lyrics, you will find that some lyrics are changed. He's changing, changing them a little bit. So I invite you to uh, just sit back and listen to Wish List, and then we'll go on from there.
I wish I was a sailor with someone who waited for me. I wish I was a messenger and all the news was good. I wish I was the souvenir you kept your house key on. I wish I was the pedal brake that you depended on. I wish I was the verb to trust and never let you down. Song that just expresses deep longings. And if you've ever taken a moment or been forced to take a moment to look at your own self, your own heart, you will recognize this feeling of deep longing, this, this longing for beauty, this longing to be loved, to have intimacy without shame or regret, this longing to be understood, or perhaps a longing for greatness. I'd like to do something that somebody would remember. A longing for truth. The longing for justice. Just a longing for life. Or the longing for a healthy life. I wish that I could be healthy again. The longing for goodness. The longing for peace. Or perhaps the longing to be able to do something like play the piano or paint or fly fish, or understand a difficult subject, or write a novel. These longings, these deep longings, I wish I was, I wish I could, are part of all of us. And I'd like to read a story with you today from the Old Testament, a story of a man who lived with longings all of his life, and then you have to think of a life that was like a total of about 180 years. And that man was Abraham. And we're going to read from Genesis 22, a story that you may know. It's like the capstone of the life of Abraham. I'm not going to go through his history before I read the story, because I'm going to do that in a second. But um, Abraham has this has this one son, this son of the promise, and he's been in relationship with God all of his life, and there have been all kinds of struggles. And then in Genesis 22, this happened. If you have a Bible, feel free to open it. The text will appear otherwise on the screen. And uh, feel free to follow along or listen. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and, and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. 
He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this, to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham at Beersheba. Before I go any further, I want to mention to you a full disclosure. This sermon is probably almost literally taken from a chapter in a book by Ellen Davis entitled Getting Involved with God, Rediscovering the Old Testament. The ideas that I'm going to bring before you now come from this chapter, and I'm going to be mixing some quotes of hers in the story that I tell. That I tell. I'm not going to project the quotes because I'm, I'm more telling a story. You may, you, may, you may hear some of that in here, but this is this is really coming directly. I'm not reading the chapter, but it's coming close to that, just so that you know that. This chapter 18, this, 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 this powerful and, and awful story, starts with the words, after these things. And when you see these words, after these things, obviously some things happened before that. And what happened before that is in the life of this old man, Abraham, who's now about 120 years old, he'd been called by God to leave his home and his family to go to a land that he did not know. And there he was promised that he'd receive this wonderful land and these offspring, and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. As he went through his life, his life was shaped and formed by that longing to see the fulfillment of that promise. But of course, his life wasn't easy as no life is easy. And all kinds of things happened. He endured famine. He fought wars. He entered into palace intrigue. 
to protect his intimacy and the virtue of, of his marriage and, and the virtue of Sarah, his wife. There was this story of internal family contact with Abraham and Sarah and his concubine Hagar who had a son with Abraham named Ishmael. And then waiting 24 years for this Isaac, the son of the promise, to be, to be born. And then God comes to him and says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. The ancient Jewish rabbis who never just take a story from Scripture and, and just read it without, without reading the story into it, they expand this terrible verse into a conversation between God and Abraham. Take your son, says God, and Abraham says back, but I have two. And God says, take your only son. And Abraham shoots back, yeah, but this one is the only son of that mother. And that one is the only son of that mother. Which one are you talking about? And God says, the one you love. And Abraham says, but I love them both. And God says, Isaac. And so in a staccato form, the text tells us, Abraham gets up early. He cuts wood for the offering. He saddles his donkey. He sets out with, with two servant lads and Isaac. And the, the, the Danish theologian Kierkegaard says that Abraham's blind obedience to God is appalling to watch. Like a sleepwalker passing along the edge of an abyss, his footsteps guided only by the instinct of faith. And so they travel for three days. And on the third day, they can see the place, they can see this Mount Moriah in the distance that's the place where God intends them to be. And then the action slows down. Davis calls it an excruciating pace. Abraham takes the wood for the offering. He puts it on the back of his son Isaac. He takes in his own hand the two dangerous instruments, the knife and the fire. And then the text said, they went both of them off together and there is tenderness and intense togetherness in this scene Isaac looks up at his father and he says Abi father Haneni answers Abraham here I am my son I'm right here where's the lamb asks Isaac God will provide, is the answer of Abraham. And there's this helpless intimacy between father and son. As the scripture says, so they're on both of them together, climbing this hill. The boy with the wood on his back. The old, old man with broken heart carrying the fire in one hand and the knife in the other. And he builds an, altar, builds an altar, takes the wood off the back of Isaac, 
lays the wood in order on the altar, ties Isaac to the altar, or ties Isaac, binds his hands, lays him on the, on the altar, on top of the wood, and then he reaches out his hand, and he grabs that knife, ready to do the deed. Because with the sacrifice of animals in those times, and I believe still today, it's the throat that's cut. And here's this old man, 120 years old, who's had this long wish list and gone through his life. And now he's standing there with a knife in one hand, ready to slit the throat of the son of the promise. You may be familiar with, heard the name of, familiar with the works of the famous Dutch painter Rembrandt. He painted two paintings of the scene. The first scene, Rembrandt is young. This was painted, I believe, 19, uh, not 19, 1635. He paints a big, flashy canvas. It shows a murder in progress. Isaac is sprawled back against the rock with his chest bare, his neck stretched, ready for the knife. Abraham is caught just at the point of plunging the knife, and at his side is this curly-haired young man with an urgent look and just a hint of wings. There's power. Coming out of this picture, it's alive. There's light all over the place. Something powerful happening. About ten years later, in the, in the time between these two, Rembrandt, at least one of his children, including a son. His son had died. So he makes an entirely different kind of picture. This is an etching. Now Isaac kneels beside the seated Abraham who is cradling his head, covering his eyes with one hand. You see Abraham is protecting him. This time the angel stands behind Abraham with wings outspread. The angel is a strong sheltering figure who cradles Abraham as Abraham cradles his son. Do you notice that Abraham does not even see, seem to see the angel? Nor does he look at the boy. He's not looking at either. He has this unfocused stare. The ravaged expression of someone who has survived something unspeakable. Rembrandt shows us what it costs Abraham to be fully responsive to God and fully responsive to his son. It costs, in the phrase of T.S. Eliot, quote, not less than everything. Abraham has been a man of longing all of his life, 120 years long. The deepest longing that you can imagine, that you can recognize that you've had, Abraham knows it through and through. Is it now fulfilled? 
Does he have his wish? Have his deepest desires become reality? Who knows? Maybe he doesn't even know. I wish I was as fortunate, as fortunate as me. But what about God? What does this story tell us about God? Most of us have this image of God as this being in the sky. This, we, use, we use in the church the word sovereign. That God's up there and he's directing everything. And he's telling us what to do. And somehow he knows what we should do. And he's directing everything. And, and all through the good and the bad, somehow we know that everything's going to turn out okay. It's all a little bit distant. It's a little bit powerful. And it's, a little bit, it's almost a little bit like a robot. Like we're robots or we're marionettes. Or maybe another way to phrase it is that God is like the tyrant who dangles Abraham from a hook after putting him through a century of broken dreams. And God watches him squirm until the divine ego is satisfied. He watches Abraham squirm while Abraham takes this big test. Will he pass it? And then God lets Abraham go. Saves his son. And then God waits for this great big thank you from Abraham. Is that your image of God? Ellen Davis suggests something different. Ellen Davis suggests that the words used in this story tell us a different story about God. They express on God's part a kind of relief. Not a relief on Abraham's part, but on God's part. God says to Abraham through the angel, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And listen to this carefully, because when I read this, this blew my mind, and it might blow yours. You see, this is a test, not just for Abraham, but for God. The words with which this story begins, and after these things, don't only relate to Abraham, they also relate to God. Because things had happened to God before this story. What had happened? Well, he'd created the world. And set the man and the woman in this beautiful garden. And what happened? They betrayed him. And then the one son murdered the other. And then the whole earth became filled with violence. And God needed to do something. He said, but this is not going in the right way. We need a change. And then after the flood, there was the Tower of Babel. And God had to separate and, and send people out into the world again. Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. 
God himself with a wish list. So longing that there would come a time when someone (laughs) would do and be what God had called him or her to do and be, and it never happened. So God looks at Abraham and says, okay, I'm going to try it with this guy. Quoting Davis, God, having been badly and repeatedly burned by human sin throughout the first few chapters of Genesis, yet still passionately desirous of working blessing in the world, now chooses to become totally vulnerable on the point of this one man's faithfulness. God is exposing himself. God is vulnerable. God is to a certain extent dependent upon Abraham. What is Abraham going to do? So he chooses Abraham, and as we've already reviewed, Abraham struggles all through his life. He's not that great of a guy. It's a disappointing showing for God's best chosen man. And so God makes one more attempt. Abraham God goes to great lengths to know for sure whether the single human thread upon which the blessing hangs will hold firm. And God is totally vulnerable in this matter of Abraham. We're given no indication of what Abraham felt when this test was over. But God's relief, says Davis, erupts from the page. He says to Abraham in verse 18, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is now going to happen, says God, because you obeyed. Now I know what's going to happen. My greatest longing that all nations and all peoples and all families of the world will be blessed. Now I know it's going to happen because see what Abraham did. He did it. Wasn't sure. Didn't know. It could have failed, just like all the chapters of Genesis before that. But it didn't. In this story, we see the deep longing, the wish list of Abraham for the blessing of God upon his people in the world. And we also see the deep longing of God the wish list of God for blessing upon his people and his land. And the two come together in deep and intimate love and vulnerability. And because of that coming together, blessing can come upon individual people, upon couples, upon families, upon parents and children, and upon the creation, and upon the world, and upon the whole history of the world. And in the New Testament, this happened two times. You remember the story of Peter, Jesus' favorite disciple. Peter, who, when, when push came to shove, there in the palace yard, 
denied Jesus three times at the most crucial night of the history of the world, Peter turned his back and ran away. Then after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter, comes to all the disciples, he comes to Peter, he looks Peter in the eye and he says, Peter, do you love me? And we always interpret that as a test of Peter. But Ellen Davis suggests that it's also a test of God. God is saying to Peter, do you love me? Are you going to be the person that I can use? Are you there? I need to know. Because upon you, the church is built. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think that we and God are together in this intimate, both vulnerable position, both with deep longings for blessing. And through all the failure and all the uncertainty and all the pain and all the things that go wrong, that fundamental thing is still there. You have done this so I know. Or do you love me? And then there's Jesus on the cross. Davis notes that the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is often read in liturgical-focused churches on Good Friday, the day that Jesus died. And in Jesus himself, the God-man, we see these stories, this story coming together. In Jesus, we see a human son of Abraham giving his all, totally faithful, sacrificing himself, for all humankind and all creation. He did what Abraham couldn't do, and he did what Peter couldn't do, and he did what none of us can do. He didn't fail. His Abi, his Father God. So we see this perfect human, and yet we see this vulnerable God, Jesus as God, Jesus as Fully God, say the, the confessions and creeds. Totally vulnerable. Hanging naked on that cross. Even to death. These two images, say Davis. Abraham binding Isaac. And Christ nailed on a cross. Are the supporting structures. The long and convoluted story of sin and salvation. Whatever your deepest longings are, know that they are fundamentally from God because He made you and He made you with them. And they are longings for shalom, for peace, for blessing. Not only upon yourself, but upon the whole world. And know that God calls you and I and us together to work with him. Not as the puppet master controlling everything, but as a partner, as someone who walks alongside with us and who is with us in our failures and who gives us strength for the successes that we might have. And as we walk with him, we can see glimpses of this blessing. And we can see that God is in Christ reconciling all things 
to himself. I wish, says Eddie Vedder, I was the verb to trust and never let you down. Amen.